Welcome to the New England Law Review On Remand podcast. I'm Volume 49's Executive Online Editor, Tiffany Knapp. And I'm Volume 49's Editor-in-Chief, Courtney Herman. The New England Law Review is the flagship publication of New England Law Boston, which is located in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. To learn more about our institution, visit the website at www.nesl.edu. And to learn more about our publication, go to newenglrev.com. Today, we are joined by Bruce Sunstein, founder and partner at Sunstein, Kahn, Murphy, and Timbers, to discuss his forthcoming article, How Prometheus Has Upended Patent Eligibility, An Anatomy of Alice Corp v. CLS Bank. His article discusses the Supreme Court's recent decision in Alice Corp v. CLS Bank, in which the court ruled on the patent eligibility of computer-related inventions, clarifying confusion of the application of the court's 2012 Mayo v. Prometheus decision to these inventions. Attorney Sunstein asserts, among other things, that the Alice Court disregards deeply ingrained principles of patent law in its approach to patent eligibility doctrine by considering patent claims generally rather than addressing claim limitations rigorously. He further criticizes the Alice decision for misconstruing precedent and working against the goals of the patent system. Attorney Sunstein, thank you for joining us. Thank you for letting me be here. To start us off, Bruce, could you give us a brief overview of patent eligibility, namely Section 101 of the Patent Act, its requirements, and judicial exceptions thereto? Well, Section 101, as its number indicates, is the first substantive section of the Patent Act, and its rules are pretty straightforward. It says, whoever invents or discovers any new and useful process, machine, manufacture, or composition of matter, or any new and useful improvement, and so forth, can get a patent subject to the conditions and requirements of this title. But what these cases are interesting about is they don't care so much what that statute says. They say what all this is about is exceptions. The court's traditional, long-identified exceptions to the patent statute, and never mind that it's the patent statute of the 1952 Act, we, the court, have found these exceptions going way back in time. So these cases hinge upon judicially created exceptions to Section 101. That makes them, shall we say, more interesting, but it also has something to do with we don't care what the statute says. We care what we say. Don't pay attention to the statute. Pay attention to us. And so the court identifies three areas where it has found exceptions to eligibility under Section 101. If you consider the language of Section 101, it's pretty broad. It says it has to be new and useful. Okay, new certainly is built into the patent law because Section 102 says if it's old, you don't get it. But it also has to be useful, so it has to be an invention that has some practical purpose. That's clearly in Section 101. But at that point, most inventions do involve a process or a machine or a manufacturer, which that's something that's made, or composition of matter, or a useful improvement thereof. So that covers a lot of things. But that broad inclusiveness is something that the court gives lip service to in these cases, Prometheus and Alice, and for that matter, Myriad, involving DNA titled Acid Materials. But the court says, if we find that the 
much involves any one of three things, we're allowed to run all over the eligibility and find the stuff not eligible. Three areas. Abstract ideas, laws of nature, and natural phenomena. Those are the things that the court says gives it permission to find patents ineligible, even though what's involved may be a new and useful process or manufacture or a machine or composition of matter. We don't care about those things because if it hits one of those judicially created exceptions, we the court are entitled to find the subject matter claim ineligible to be patented. So that's the stage on which these two cases sit. And the Alice decision at bottom follows Prometheus. Now, Prometheus itself are because Alice involves a computer-related invention. Prometheus has nothing to do with that. Prometheus involves a class of drugs, thiopurine drugs, and it's all about determining whether the dosage of a thiopurine drug that's been administered to a patient should be changed. Now that's what happened. The claim in Prometheus had a couple of steps. The first claim limitation administering a drug. The second limitation is determining the level of a metabolite in the body associated with that drug. And then the rest of the claim says something like wherein a measure of that metabolite is above some threshold and they're very specific about what that threshold is, indicates a need to reduce dosage of the drug, and a level of metabolite that's below a different threshold indicates a need to increase dosage of the drug. And the court says, miraculously and unanimously, that the subject matter claim in that case is ineligible to be patented because it too closely involves a natural phenomenon. The first step, which is administering the drug, Justice Breyer, who writes the opinion, says only informs us of the relevant audience. Now, I thought the claim limitation meant that the method has to be practiced by administering the drug and that the relevant audience is anyone who reads the patent. But that's not what Justice Breyer says. And the measurement step, he gives short shrift to. Now, what does it mean to measure the level of metabolite in a patient? You have to typically take a blood sample of the patient using a man-made device. You then have to run the blood through some kind of clinical assay instrument to determine the level of that metabolite and report it. And you certainly have to use a sophisticated instrumentation in order to determine the level of that metabolite. But about these steps, Justice Breyer simply says those steps are well known. As to measurement, whether you, you know, the conclusion, whether you're above or below the threshold, etc., that's all part of natural law, and all, all that he says is that 
as a result of procedures of Prometheus, can claims simply say, these are the laws, apply. That's what he says. What's interesting, though, about this kind of analysis is he doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about what the claim limitations are. So, Prometheus is notable in a bunch of different ways. First of all, he does not spend a lot of time thinking about what the claim limitations actually require. And second of all, it involves generalizations of what the claims are about. Later, the Alice decision characterized what went on in Prometheus as first determining whether one of the two exceptions was involved. And, and you see some of this language in Prometheus as well. Is one of the three exceptions implicated? How do you determine that? The court doesn't tell you. But first, do you find out whether one of those three exceptions is involved? After that, then the task of the evaluator, which has to be a court, since they're the only ones who can find patents ineligible, is to understand, and this is a quote, the inventive concept that is in the claim. And the exercise then, once you've determined the inventive concept, and you have to do it two ways, first you have to look at the claims as an ordered combination. At least one of the things you do is look at them as an ordered combination, and you look at them separately. You look at them, I think, as a whole. That's the concept. And you come up with the inventive concept. How do you come up with the inventive concept? That's not told to us by the court either. But the exercise with respect to the inventive concept is to determine whether it presents more than what is already determined to be the ineligible exception, being either natural phenomenon, abstract idea, or law of nature. And if, quote, substantially more, close quote, is presented than what is in the ineligible exception, then the subject matter would be deemed eligible to the patent. Is that clear to everybody? Of course not. But that's what the court said. And Alice repeats this monkey business that's articulated first in Prometheus. So that's actually the holding. It's the holding in Prometheus and the holding in Alice. That's the methodology that one is supposed to use. Thank you, Bruce. Could you explain to us the main flaw you see with the Supreme Court's analysis, namely the generalized consideration of patent claims rather than rigorous consideration of claim limitations? Since the court is not bothered with any of the niceties that normally occur when one is interpreting patent claims, one can use the court's approach to invalidate absolutely anything. One of the things one might do is consider an earlier case where the Supreme Court, by one vote, found subject matter to be eligible. This is the case that spawned a whole series of favorable eligibility decisions called Diamond v. Deere, spelled D-I-E-H-R. In that case, what was claimed was a method of molding rubber, and under the method steps, rubber was placed into the mold, and the temperature of the mold was monitored in real time. And part of the novelty of the 
subject matter was to take those temperature measurements and plug them into something called the Arrhenius equation, which was solved by the computer, and came up with a time, a time amount, namely how much time is left until the rubber is cured. So you heat the rubber long enough in the mold until it's cured, and then you open up the mold and spit out the rubber. Since the claim required solving the Arrhenius equation repeatedly over time, in fact, even once would have been enough, the Patent Office, following a case called Gottschalk against Benson, said this is ineligible to be patented. Eventually, the case gets to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says all this is eligible subject matter because the algorithm, the way it's claimed here, will not preempt all uses of the algorithm, only in a method for molding rubber. So what's claimed as a method for molding rubber, we find this eligible to be patented. And that kind of language, that thought, is reproduced by Justice Thomas in the Alice case, saying that's a different situation because that was a method of molding rubber. Well, it makes perfect sense. But what Justice Thomas didn't do is take his newly articulated standards in Prometheus and Alice and apply it to Diamond versus Deer. Is one of the three exceptions apply? Yes, the abstract idea of solving the Arrhenius equation. That's abstract. Okay, since one of the three exceptions is involved, we have to determine the, quote, inventive concept behind the subject matter that is claimed. Well, what's the inventive concept? First, we look at the claim. It's an ordered combination. And we find that the main aspect in this ordered combination is the molding of rubber. But the molding of rubber is, in the words of Justice Breyer, routine. It was well known to mold rubber. And it was even well known in the prior art to monitor the temperature. And we can look at the claims as a whole, and still we don't see any difference. It's a method of molding rubber that happens to use the abstract idea of the Arrhenius equation. Does the rest of the claim then add, quote, substantially more than this abstract idea? No, of course not. Therefore, we in the court, acting retroactively in light of Alice and Prometheus, find the subject matter claimed in Diamond versus Deer ineligible to be patented. And what is wrong with this logic? Well, the problem with this logic is that the logic articulated in those two cases can be applied to anything. And it certainly can be applied to diamond versus deer. So, in other words, the methodology and method of analysis can be applied to anything used to find ineligible the subject matter of anything. That's a pretty big flaw. It's not the only flaw, but it's a big one. One, one takes a look at this kind of rationale used by the court, one thinks they have to mean it. Could they really have meant this? And maybe they did mean it. But if they meant it, it must be because they first came to the result of deciding that the subject matter shouldn't be eligible, and then found the rationale to use the same words that they used in prior cases, what got them to where they wanted to be. Frankly, that's my read of what was on the court's mind. And frankly, I find that really objectionable. In a society that's governed by the rule of law, I don't see law rule. I see passion. I see anything 
what, what the path was to him. A common criticism of the Portland Symphony and the Patton pieces is that they don't really want to delve into the case itself. They want to do very surface level analysis, I guess, so they're not really interested in getting into the technology behind the patent. They really just want to look at just the Patent Act and very surface level technological explanations. So the question then, in a way, is given the intention of the court to be surface, what does that say about the court's view of the patent system? I think there are a number of related points to make about this. Justice Breyer has a reputation for caring a lot about antitrust concepts. Patent law being a way of excluding others from the market is viewed by him, I think, with suspicion. And frankly, the liberal judges in general tend to view this kind of thing with suspicion. And I don't think they accept the fundamental tenets of the patent system, of the exchange of disclosure for exclusive rights over a limited period of time. And, and in this respect, if you look at the rationale, why are those three exceptions articulated in those cases? The court actually says why. Why are those exceptions present? And the court says, because if things very close to laws of nature, natural phenomena, and abstract ideas can be patented, it is tying up the fundamental tools of science. That rationale, in my opinion, reflects a combination of ignorance and failure to appreciate what the patent system is about. One of the things that bears on this is an extensive separate opinion of Judge Newman in the decision below in the Alice case. Judge Newman is almost never in the majority with the Federal Circuit. But her opinions, in my view, are brilliant. And she points out the fallacy of that kind of thinking, and she doesn't pin it on the court. But she does say that her colleagues embrace it in articulating various rules. And she says, at bottom, that's a misconception of how patents operate. Even assuming that something fundamental were patented, it does not tie up science or research or development or engineering. And the reason is that it is not an infringement of a patent to think up new ideas. And she would go further and has pointed out in her opinion that experimental activities tend not to be viewed as infringement historically, notwithstanding some attempts to find precedent in the other direction. And indeed, the principle of the patent system is that if an idea is deemed to be eligible to be patented, namely if it satisfies 101 and it also satisfies sections 102 for novelty, section 103 for non-obviousness, and section 112 for claiming with particularity that which of the subject matter and describing in a way that enables somebody else to practice that subject matter without undue experimentation. If those criteria are satisfied, then when the patent runs out, the public knows how to do stuff. They know exactly what's going on. And that part of the trade is what produces advancement. And you think about in Prometheus, the Mayo Clinic knew what to do when it wanted to copy what Prometheus was doing because all it had to do was read the patent Prometheus got 
And this idea that the Mayo Clinic is inhibited by the presence of this patent is disproven by the very activity that they were sued for infringement. And I think the actual facts of these cases betrays the fallacies of the court's reasoning. The statement court's opinions of Prometheus, Myriad, and Alice are impliedly self-oriented, referring to patent and foreign objects rather than doctrine-oriented. Could you explain what you mean by this and the effects on the patent system as a whole? Patent reform, and that's a term put in quotes, has been a rallying cry of a fairly vocal group of companies over the past decade or so. And one of the loudest voices, quietly, call it that, is Google's. But they're not alone. They're joined by companies like SAP and Oracle and maybe Apple. What these companies have in common is big brands, great market power, and fundamental products and presence in the marketplace that can be involved computer-related inventions. Why is this? I think one reason is that those companies do not at bottom very much like the patent system. Yes, they have lots of patents, but if you have market power, you don't really need patents. Your brand is so powerful, if you go through the listing of companies, SAP, Google, Apple, Oracle, they're dominating forces in their industry segments, and they don't need patents because generally people who want products and services in their area will simply go there. In contrast, most companies that depend on technological development need patents because they don't have market power. Many of the clients of my law firm lack that kind of market power, and they depend on patents. Some large companies really value the patent system and support it. And those companies include General Electric, they include 3M. Those are companies that have a long history of innovation, and they their innovations can be protected by patents. If they lose their patents, they lose their market leverage, and they don't like that. So it's not just that it's a big company involved, that it's a certain group of big companies that would rather file the teeth of the patent system than have to deal with it. Those companies, even GE and 3M, get plenty of suits by companies that are sometimes called trolls. What, what's a troll? I think a troll is, speaking cynically, as general counsel of one of the companies like Google, a troll is anybody who is suing my company. More generally, a troll might be somebody that doesn't manufacture anything, but they're sometimes called non-practicing entities. But there's quite a range of, of activities here that are pulled in by this kind of story. And, and, you know, I touch on this a little bit in my book, but it would be a suitable topic for somewhere else. But that's part of the rhetoric. Calling the person who sues, sues my company a troll already makes them a bad person. So uh, I digressed a little bit. stuff like that in the air, I think, was partially inspiration to the court. If the court happens to file the teeth of the patent system, then they're helping these companies fight trolls. I don't think that's good for innovation in this country, and I don't think it's good for the patent system. I think many of the suits involving these so-called trolls have 
merit. And that's shown by the fact that plenty of times these alleged trolls win. And is that just because they're holding up development? On the contrary, a lot of times those patents come from activities years before that were pioneering in their field at a time when the companies that are sued were helping them sell to the technology market. Thank you, Bruce. Lastly, could you give us an overview of your proposed amendment to Section 101 and how it would solve the problems we've discussed here? Solving problems may be an overstatement, but I think at bottom, if Congress were to pass legislation that prevented the court from imposing these judicially created exceptions, then one could address the invention on the basis of the merits of the invention. You don't need to invalidate claims by finding them ineligible to be patented. You can consider them on the merits. The patent statute has an admirable set of filters. As I mentioned, Section 102 says you can patent stuff only if it's new. Section 103 says not only must it be new, it must also be non-obvious. Section 112 says that the technology must be described in sufficient detail that a person of ordinary skill in the art can implement it suitably. And furthermore, that the subject matter has to be claimed as originally relevant. All of those things are in Section 112. And Section 112 has a lot of parts, actually, paragraphs that have to be involved. And those paragraphs lay out things that can be addressed. If the problem in Prometheus is that the ideas aren't new, say so. Why not attack them under Section 103? Why does the court rule the stuff ineligible using criteria that cannot be applied in any systematic and technical way? Ditto Alice. If the concepts involved in hedging are old, address them with Section 103. Why find them ineligible to be patented? If you think about it, in software, the concept that the software is directed to an abstract idea is deductive. Software is lines of code. And if you don't like the fact that the software is being used to conduct events in business, why? Why don't you like it? Either because the method of business is being conducted isn't new and wouldn't be non-obvious, or is that you just don't like business, or you don't like people in business with new ideas. It seems to me the weapons of Section 102, Section 103, and Section 112 are adequate to this purpose. And by putting its thumb on the scales in this way, the court is causing great harm to patents. So, the proposed legislation simply says, if the subject matter that's claimed is useful, then it should not be deemed to be ineligible to be patented because directed to a law of nature, a natural phenomenon, or an abstract idea. That's at bottom what the legislation says. It would adjust an additional sentence at the end of Section 101, and we would add, furthermore, that the invention shall be evaluated under the other provisions of this title, namely 102, 103, and 112. Thank you for joining us, Bruce. Be sure to read Attorney Sunstein's article in its entirety in the New England Law Review, Volume 49, Book 1, 
expected to be published in early 2015. Additionally, information about our forthcoming Volume 48, Issue Book 4, is available on our forthcoming page. Volume 48, Book 3, will be newly available on our website, www.newenglrev.com, as well. I'm Volume 49 Executive Online Editor, Tiffany Knapp. And I'm Volume 49 Editor-in-Chief, Courtney Herndon. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more from the New England Law Review on Remand Podcast.